session from the last session. We're good? We're good. We're good, right? We're good. All right, excellent. Questions from the last session? No, no questions. So, uh, you should have the session number two presentation on your hard drive, I mean on your Google Drive. And today we're going to talk about problems within the bladder. We have four diseases for today. Uh, bladder incontinence, neurogenic bladder, bladder fistulas, and cancer. Just, just uh, for you to refresh your memory about simple facts about the bladder. Okay, so you can read that on your own. Also, a little bit of diastology. Since we're going to talk about cancer, just for you to remember that. Now, let's talk about bladder incontinence. What is this whole deal of, of incontinence? When we talk about incontinence, we're talking about involuntary leakage of urine from the bladder. Okay. Often this disease will remain undetected or undiagnosed and undertreated. Okay. The reason for that is because it will cause embarrassment. So the patient, most of the times they won't tell you that they're suffering from the problem. Other thing is that <clears throat> the other factor is the lack of knowledge. It means the patient doesn't know that this, this problem can be solved. And number three, the fear of a possible surgical uh, treatment. So those three factors will allow the disease to remain undetected and undertreated most of the times. Now, a little bit of the epidemiology. As you see, individuals that are living in, in, in nursing facilities, they might show some level of um, incontinence, 43 to 77% of the cases. Individuals with cognitive impairment also will have that. Now, part of the, of the problem of defining what, when this uh, uh, incontinence has become a problem is because there's no guidelines that define clearly what's the degree, what's the quantity, or what is the frequency of this uh, abnormality to determine when somebody is having actually a problem. Okay. Now, what is the etiology? Etiology basically two things. One, as you can see on this slide, we need to have intact micturation, means the anatomy and the physiology pertaining to the micturation in our body needs to be intact. And number two, obviously, somebody needs to be trained to use the toilet or yeah, the toilet. Now, how are we gonna classify this disease? You have three types there. Number one is your stress incontinence. Number two, urgency incontinence. And number three, overflow incontinence, okay? We're gonna talk about each of one of them in a minute. Stress incontinence, what is this stress incontinence? By definition, individuals with stress incontinence, they will have an involuntary leakage of urine that occurs when the abdominal pressure increases, means any type of uh, uh, situation where there's some sort of valsalva maneuver, okay, that uh, intra-abdominal pressure increase, coughing, sneezing, or an actual valsalva maneuver, what it's gonna create, it is going to create an involuntary leakage of urine. Does it make sense? So these individuals will have or will experience uh, urine leakage 
every single time, you know, they sneeze, they cough, or they lift something heavy, you know, they increase the abdominal pressure, urine will come out, okay? Now, this stress incontinence is going to be the most common type in younger women, okay? Between the ages of 45 to 49, okay? That's where you're gonna see it. Now, what's gonna be the mechanism? Two things, one, they're gonna have urethral hypermotility, and number two, the intrinsic sphincteric, or the, uh, the inner sphincter is going to be deficient. It's unable to hold the pressure of that water, I'm sorry, of that urine that is within the bladder. That's why when the pressure increases, the urine will come out. Now, when we talk about number two, the urge or urgency incontinence, this patient will experience that urgency to void. Okay, they will, they will experience it, and immediately after that, urine will come out. Okay, now you will read on your other books the word overreactive bladder, which is a term that will describe this type of problem. It is the same. It is the same. Now, these individuals uh, will experience the problem or will experience the, 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 the leakage of urine, especially during these three situations that I have on the slide. One, sudden change of position. Number two, the sound of running water. You probably heard this before with a family member. And number three, during sexual intercourse, especially during the orgasm. They won't be able to hold the urine. Now, when it comes to urge and urgency incontinence, it's a little bit more complicated because as you will see on, on, uh, on, on other slide, one of the causes of urge of urgency incontinence, it is going to be problems with the innervation of that area. And if that's the case, that it's gonna make it a, a type of neurogenic bladder. And we're gonna talk about neurogenic bladder that is a little bit more confusing. But don't worry, I'm gonna try to explain it best that I, the best I can. Now, what about overflow incontinence? This is the, the most common type of incontinence for men, okay? This uh, type of incontinence uh, will occur usually when there is some type of blo uh, uh, blockage of the urine coming out of the bladder, okay? These individuals will have uh, an extra amount of urine remaining within their bladder, okay? That's why you will see it uh, farther that uh, diseases like uh, enlarged prostate may cause this type of overflow. Now, like always, there's always others. And I found this one, which is the functional incontinence. And what is functional incontinence? It's literally when you have a condition that won't allow you to reach or to get to uh, the toilet in, within time. Or you get to the toilet within time, but you ha don't have the means, for example, to pull down your pants, to pull down your zipper, and you have an involuntary uh, uh, leakage of urine, okay? Diseases like, you know, uh, severe arthritis, people with dementia will experience this type of functional incontinence. And then, mix. Yes, it can happen. Mix uh, uh, incontinence. 
risk factors. When we talk about the risk factors, the one on top, obesity. Yes, it is proven that obese, uh, people with the, are, are overweight will experience more often uh, urinary incontinence. Parity. The more, uh, especially the more vaginal deliveries the patient has, the more likely the patient will experience this problem. Okay. Family history, yes. You know, if, if it runs in the family, uh, they might experience it. Number three, uh, the next one is age. The older we get, the more likely that we are going to experience these type of problems. Others, you have them there. Smoking, caffeine intake, diabetes, stroke, depression, fecal incontinence, vaginal hypertrophy, hormone replacement therapy, radiation, prostate disease, etc., etc., etc. But I like to make things a little bit more simple so we can actually relate on an easier way when you're facing your patient and you are doing the questions to identify which type of uh, incontinence you might be dealing with. So as you see on the slide, for stress incontinence, we know that it's going to be more commonly seen in females. So we want to know the uh, uh, numbers of pregnancy and the type of delivery. Okay? Those two dots need to be connected with the type of uh, um, uh, disease. Now, the age and obesity as well. Now, when we talk about the urge or urgency incontinence, on the other hand, we need to talk about problems with the nervous system. Okay. And it's very complex, but do not worry. Now, when we talk about the overflow incontinence, which is the most common one within the male population, as you can see on the slide, we have things that might cause mechanical obstruction for the urine to enter the urethra. For example, like I said, an enlarged prostate gland. A tumor that is like right on that section where the, uh, where the bladder meets the urethra. A stone that is big enough to clog that area. Okay, so keep those uh, factors into consideration, please. Now, what is going to be the signs and symptoms? The main signs and symptom, sign in, or symptom is going to be that involuntary leakage of urine. Now, you might see all kinds of symptoms, especially when there is a condition related to the incontinence. Okay. If it's an enlarged prostate, these individuals might experience oliguria, you know, nocturia. Uh, if it's a, 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 a female that had uh, five vaginal deliveries, who knows? Maybe there is some level of uh, uh, prolapse of the cervix or, or the bladder. So. Connect all those dots using what is common within each of one of the genders, okay? Male or female. 
makes it easier, I would say. Now, what is it going to be the way that we diagnose this disease? Obviously, <coughs> clinical history, physical exam, okay? And then we do the routine, urinalysis, urine culture, urine cytology. Now, urinalysis in urine culture, because most of these individuals, especially if they're retaining urine, okay, like in the case of overflow incontinence, okay, these individuals oh, are having urine stasis. And as you know, urine stasis increases the chances for urinary tract infections. So we want to know that. But also, this, the bladder stress test, and you have a little description there, how it's done, that is what is going to help you identify if this individual is having, besides those three, five factors, okay, is going to help you to identify if this individual ha is having or experiencing stress incontinence. Okay? Make sense, everyone? Is following me? Okay, now, what about the urge incontinence? More complicated. Let's leave that at the end. But when it comes to overflow incontinence, sorry, the bladder stress test will not help us that much. Okay? But the postvoidal residual, okay, urine, that is what is going to tell us, hey, yeah, you know what? This individual is having problems releasing urine because there is some kind of obstruction there. That's why residual urine is being left behind in the bladder. Does it make sense, everyone? Yes? Makes sense, right? Now, when it comes to the differential diagnosis, you name it. It's a lot of diseases that can cause you to have that, you know, to have the patient to wet their underwear. I have a small list for you there. Things like vaginitis, prostatitis, multiple sclerosis, urinary obstruction, you name it. Okay? It's a lot of them. What is it going to be, the treatment? How are we going to do the treatment? The whole deal of doing the treatment is to simply to decrease the amount of episodes of incontinence, okay? Now, first we need to identify which type is it. Once it's identified, we start with the less invasive treatments to the more invasive or aggressive treatments. What is it going to be the less invasive? Well. Uh, lifestyle changes. If you know your patient is having stress incontinence, right, and he's overweight, well, that is something that we can modify. Yes? Yes, right? Uh, if we, <coughs> we can use the pelvic floor muscle exercises or Kegel, yes, they do work. On females, on males, not really, but it. 
Now, when it comes to the pharmacu uh, pharmacological therapeutics, we have alpha blockers, anti-muscarinic drugs, serotonin uh, reuptake inhibitors, norepinephrine uh, reuptake inhibitors. Okay. But also, there are surgical treatments. Okay. Once again, everything is depending on the type and what is affecting the problem. I will say for stress and overflow incontinence. With the urgency or uh, a neurogenic bladder, it's way more difficult, and we're gonna talk about that in a, right now, okay? So, it could be electrical stimulation, injection of botulinum toxin within that area, using assist assistoscope, etc. However, if you see the flowchart here, that's how more or less you will have an idea how do the approach and evaluation on your patient that is having urinary incontinence. But you might be professor, this is a little bit complicated. Do not worry. Unless if you work for a urologist, you might be getting deep into this thing. Your job is to identify if this individual is having uh, urinary incontinence, <coughs> a bladder incontinence, and which type might be. Then, try to refer them to the right individual. Okay? Because as you will see a little bit later, the treatment and the management of this incontinence, it gets really complicated once we're dealing with a neurogenic bladder. Okay? So, you can read that on your own, not a problem. Now, let's start to tackle this one, because it's a little bit difficult. What's the deal with the neurogenic bladder? First, we need to understand that the urinary bladder is made out of visceral smooth muscle. That it is going to require a voluntary control that comes from the cerebral cortex. Means that you can decide when to urinate and when not. Yes or no? Yes, right? Now, the normal function of this bladder will require afferent and efferent uh, components, both from the somatic nervous system, but also from the autonomous nervous system. So it's something very complex. There you have it. And that's why you have that little thing with the headache. You don't have to memorize that. That's just for you to understand the complexity of the innervation that is involved with the normal micturation in humans. Now, anything, any disease, any condition that affects that normal, that homeostasis within that area, it might cause neurogenic bladder. Okay. You have examples there. Multiple sclerosis, spinal cord injuries, cerebrovascular diseases, Parkinson, diabetes, uh, meningomyelocellis, traumatic injuries to the spinal cord within that region also might cause neurogenic bladder. In conclusion, we can say that anything disrupting the brain, the spinal cord, and the nerve conduction involved with the normal micturation 
it will cause a neurogenic bladder. That's why it makes it so complicated. Okay? Because you might be dealing, for example, if it's the upper motor, uh, upper, uh, upper motor neuron, the one that is affected, okay, you might be dealing with a spastic bladder. But if it's the lower motor neuron, the one that is affected, you might be dealing with a bladder that doesn't have muscle tone. Okay? And on both scenarios, the treatment is going to be different, at least the pharmacological treatment. That's what it makes it really complicated. So we're going to try to understand that a little bit. Do not worry, I will try to walk you through this. Now, this is a little bit of the epidemiology. 40 to 90% of the patients with multiple sclerosis might experience it. 37 to 72% of the patients with Parkinson. 50% of the patients with strokes. 70 to 84% uh, uh, of the patients with spinal cord injuries. They will experience some level of uh, bladder dysfunction. So as you see, anything that has to do with the, uh, with the nervous system it will cause this problem. What is it going to be the symptoms? Well, obviously, the, these individuals might suffer the two extremes, believe it or not. They might experience incontinence, leakage of urine, but also they might experience urine retention. Okay? They might experience both. Now, if they experience urine retention, obviously, they might experience urinary tract infections. So they will have signs and symptoms of urine, urinary tract infections, but also, <clears throat> even if they're not suffering from retention, just for the fact that, and we're gonna have a case like this, just for the fact that part of the treatment on somebody that has a, a spinal cord injury is gonna be immobilization, or probably they are unable to deambulate or go, uh, <clears throat> they're, gonna, they're gonna need a, a Foley catheter, just that. Uh, procedure will increase their chances of having urinary tract infection. So urinary tract infection signs and symptoms might be part of the symptoms together with the urinary retention and the urinary incontinence for these individuals. Now, how we are going to do the diagnosis? Complicated. Number one, Complete physical uh, exam and clinical history. Check radiological studies that can go from voiding cystourethrographies, excretory urographies, etc. CT scans, MRIs. Then we have these uh, special uh, urologic studies like cystoscopy, uh, ultrasounds of the area. But then on number six, you have something that I never mentioned before, which are the urodynamic studies. Okay. These are the very specialized studies that will allow us to record <clears throat> nerve functions of the organs, or at least the structures involved with the normal micturition in humans. Okay. So you have there examples of urodynamic uh, studies, like uh, systometry, urethroperitial recordings, uroflometry, etc. Okay. Now, these individuals they need to be reevaluated constantly because things might be changing. 
you have like three slides there with each one of the Eurodynamic studies. That's just for you to get familiar with it. Okay, it's just a, a simple description of what it is and probably how the the, uh, the diagnostic exam is done and what is it that evaluates. Now, it's a little bit of the differential diagnosis. You know, cystitis, interstitial cystitis, anything that might cause obstruction, you know, psychosomatic disturbances. But the fact is that identifying all the diseases that might cause these type of neurological problems, that's the key. Or at least to expect some level of incontinence of urine retention when you have individuals with the conditions that we mentioned before. Now, I think this is very common. You know, riding a motorcycle, riding a car, jet ski, ATV, trauma or polytraumatized individual. And what I bring you here is an individual that has some, some sort of spinal cord injury. Okay? So, besides all the other st stuff that might be wrong with this guy, you know, hey, broken bones, uh, lacerated uh, liver, lacerated spleen, who knows, maybe a puncture uh, column, you name it. This individual, if he has a spinal cord injury, he might be, uh, he's going to experience some level of neurogenic bladder. And this is more or less what is going to happen. Number one, immediately after the, the injury, there is a sharp phase that will last between weeks to two to three years. But on average, to maybe like two to three months. Okay. At this point, the bladder is going to be completely dissoci dissociated from the nervous control. Therefore, this bladder is going to be areflexic. Means either it's not going to contract or relax. It's just there. Now, at this point, what is going to be the management? What we want is we want to make sure that this urine is drained. And that's the point where the patient is going to be catheterized with a Foley catheter, plastic tube, collecting bag. So we can measure their input and outputs of fluids. Okay? So this clean, sterile, intermittent catheterization will take place. However, as you know, this is an invasive procedure that will increase the chances of infections. So we're going to have to move this guy to something that is less invasive. And that's when we can transition this patient to a variation of a collection device, which are known like condom cat catheters. By the way, if we're talking about a male patient, you can't do this on females. Females, you're going to have to keep them with a folly because there is no other way. But if it's a male, we can use condom catheters. That is literally like a condom that is secured within the penis so it is not entering through the urethra. Then uh, we have, you know, uh, we have to rule any infections and then adjusting, we're gonna adjust how this clean intermittent catheterization and fluid intake and medications need to be 
considered at that point. However, that this is where it gets tricky. Before we prescribe any type of drug, you are going to need those urodynamic studies. Okay, urodynamic studies. Because, as you can see there, we have anticholinergics, tricyclic antidepressants. By the way, you don't have to memorize all this. This, this is very specialized. It's just for you to have an understanding of what is going to happen with an individual that may be experiencing neurogenic bladders, you know, they need specialized care. Okay? Just just follow me on the story so you so you understand this. Okay? So, and then you see alpha adrenergic medications. Now if you see each of one of them has a different a different a different effect here. Now how or which one we are going to use? It is going to depend on what the studies are showing. If the studies are showing that the, the, the bladder is being uh, 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 contracting too much, well, you might need a medication to relax the bladder. If you have problems with the sphincter that is not opening or closing properly, well, medication that, it that regulates the tonicity. And that's why I was telling you that when it comes to the neurogenic bladder, it is very complex. It is very complex. Thank God you don't have to, at least at this point, you don't have to deal with this. Just know about neurogenic bladder. Make sense, everyone? Yes. Okay, so what is it going to be the, con the consequences? So the complications of the neurogenic bladder. You know these things already. If the bladder is <clears throat> not releasing the urine properly, or the patient is being catarized, the chances of urinary tract infection will skyrocket. You know that. Now, you know also that in when urine is static, it's not moving, stone formation. You know that. Now, incontinence, we talked about it. But on number four, and this is a problem, especially if it remains untreated, that could happen, guys especially when the patient is at home already, okay? We can, these individuals might start experiencing retrograde, retrograde, bless you, flow from bladder to ureters and then to kidneys. And this might cause dilation of the ureters and dilation of the kidneys, and you know that as hydronephrosis, okay? So that's why sometimes we have patients that, hey, and you're like, why, why, why is he experiencing uh, uh, kidney failure? Well, one of the reasons could be that there was some level of hydronephrosis there because of that bladder being neurogenic. So it requires somebody with a lot of experience, it requires a lot of studies to determine what's going to be the natural course of what is going to be the pharmacological course of the disease, but things can change, so it requires more studies. So something that needs to be studied, you know, in a regular basis to adjust the dosages or to adjust the medications. That make, makes it a little bit complicated. Now, let's talk about something that is very simple, at least I think, bladder fistula. 
what is a fistula? A fistula, by definition, is going to be the abnormal communication between two surfaces. Abnormal communication between two surfaces. Okay. That could occur on, I would say, anywhere in the human body. Now, we are going to talk about this abnormal communication between the bladder and certain organs within that region. This type of, uh, con this type of condition can be uh, originated either congenital defects or it can be acquired. Okay. Now, if it's acquired, diatogenic, because of surgery, for example, trauma, penetrating, uh, uh, penetrating a, a abdominal wound, yes, tumor caused by exposure to carcinogenics, for example, or inflammation. Now, I'm showing you there the three most common types of fistulas, bladder fistulas. Excuse me. The one between the bladder and the vaginal canal that is going to be known as a vesicle vaginal. The one between the bladder and the intestine, which is going to be known as a vesicle intestinal or enterovesicle. Same thing. And the one between the bladder and the skin that is going to be known as vesicle cutaneous. Those three are the most common ones that you will see during your practice. Now, can you see them on a general practitioner, family practice, urgent care setting? Yes. And you will learn how to identify them with me right now. Okay? That's just a picture illustrating these abnormal communications. You see there? Vesicobaginal vesicle, etc. I like pictures. I'm a visual person. Okay? So that's how it's going to look. Once again, fistulas, a normal communication between two surfaces. Okay? Two organs. That, what you see there, guys, that's the vesicle cutaneous fistula. I'm getting from the computer so I can show you things. Uh, this is a the left testicle, okay, and this is the junction between the thigh and the testicle right here. That's the hole. Then here, this is another vesicle cutaneous, right there. What happened to the screen? Wasn't me. And then here, you see, this one is even, you know, super wet. Okay? So that's your vesicle cutaneous. Very easy to identify. It is not something that you must expect to see during a normal physical exam, but you always need to keep your eyes open and your differential diagnosis always open to abnormal findings when you're doing physical exams, okay? So if you see urine 
dripping from any area, you know, within that vicinity. From the skin, well, guess what? Congratulations, you might have identified a vesicle cutaneous fistula. Okay? Now, this is a little bit of the epidemiology. Thank God, here in the U.S., it's not something that is common. Surgical technique is pristine. Okay? So, you don't see that that often. <clears throat> but, you might see it. What's the etiology? I have them here separated based on which type of fistula you're talking about. For example, if you're talking about the vesicle vaginal fistulas, okay, usually this is the one commonly seen uh, because of gynecological birth trauma. Okay? When if you ever had the opportunity to do a vaginal delivery, okay, one of the uh, one of the things that you need to be careful is the way the the baby is descending through the vaginal canal. Okay, it needs to descend at certain rhythm. So sometimes, you know, it's just. There's people that they don't know how to, uh, I would say, how to control it, or how to uh, how to protect, for example, the perineum. You know, the perineum needs to be protected. It's called rectum maneuver. Protect it, or or you cut it. So sometimes it is it is going to be very messy. It is going to be very traumatic, especially if it occurs at home. Usually, when when there is a vaginal delivery that occurs at home, uh, you know. It is going to be traumatic. This might cause, you know, this type of uh, uh, bladder fistulas. And yes, they there is deliveries at home, by the way. It's big now. Yeah, there is. There is. So, surgery. Any type of uh, surgery within the vicinity. You know, uh, sometimes, uh, especially when they're doing anastomosis. Everybody know what anastomosis is, right? When you connect two things together. Sometimes, that connection, it is not 100% sealed. So there might be a little bit of uh, urine escaping through there. That can cause it. Catheters cause trauma to it. Puncture the bladder. It can happen. Okay? Cancers... Not really, okay? Cancers, not really. What cancers are going to cause are the vesicle intestinal fistulas or enterovesicle fistulas. And so are the inflammatory diseases of the small and large intestine. Remember, they're very close to each other. So when these inflammatory processes occur and if they get together, you know, they get together, that inflammatory processes is going to start uh, causing some sort of erosion through the intestinal mucosa that might reach the bladder. And guess what? You will have that abnormal communication between the bladder and the uh, intestine. Now, 
out of all these inflammatory diseases, always keep in consideration if you manage patients with diverticulosis, that that might occur. So diverticulitis, put it on top of your list of the, <clears throat> as an etiology for enterovesical fistulas. Now, what about the vesicocutaneous fistula on the other hand? Cystostomy, guys. When somebody has a cystostomy, high risk, high risk of having a vesicocutaneous uh, uh, fistula. Okay? Now, foreign bodies, yes, cancer, and most definitely abdominal trauma. Especially the type of penetrating abdominal trauma. Remember that you can have a blunt abdominal trauma, but if you have a penetrating abdominal trauma, stab wound, uh, gunshot wounds, machete, things like that, yeah, it can, it can lead. After fixing up the, the problem, once again, the anastomosis sometimes leaks, and that can cause that abnormal communication that we know as fistulas. Okay? Risk factors, you have them there. Talk about it. Okay? So, vaginal delivery, cesarean section, uh, peripartum hysterectomy, cystostomy, hysterectomy, any type of surgery within that area, guys. It only takes a blink of an eye and a really sharp medicine bond when they're doing the dissection, okay, on, on a, on a, on a C-section. You know, they're cutting the, 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 the peritoneum, and let's say the bladder wasn't empty completely. It's right there. A blink of an eye, you cut it, and it's going to start dripping urine. It's going to, might cause a fistula. Okay? Now, <clears throat> signs and symptoms, well, the abnormal urine uh, 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 leakage, okay, that will come from the areas that we mentioned. However, that is if you are dealing with a vesicle vaginal, you will have urine coming through the vaginal canal. And besides, you will see <clears throat> upon inspection of the vaginal canal, you will see irritative changes within the uh, vaginal mucosa. Like we talked about the ectopic implantation of the ureter, remember? So you will see it there. Now, here, you might see a larger amount of urine because remember, it is a, literally a tube that comes directly from the bladder into the vaginal canal that is just dripping urine that is being collected by the bladder. So it's dripping a lot of urine. Now, also, these individuals might experience urinary in, uh, <clears throat> infection signs and symptoms. Okay? Why? Because, remember, it is bypassing, bypassing the normal regulatory uh, uh, anatomical structures that lead to the bladder. Means, you have to go through the urethra and the different segments of the urethra and also the sphincters in order to reach the bladder. At least, if you're a bacteria, that's a long way. Right? Now, if we're talking about an abnormal communication 
that doesn't have sphincters, uh, that is relatively short from the vaginal canal that is always populated with gram-negative bacteria, it's a short road into the bladder. That bladder can get infected. Makes sense, right? Now, also, if that's when you're talking about the vesicle vaginal, but what about if you're talking about the enterovesicle? So you're talking about a direct communication between the bladder and the uh, intestines, okay? Those cases, things get a little bit more complicated because besides having the signs and symptoms of the uh, urinary infection because of the gram-negative bacteria migrating from the column or the small intestine into the bladder, you might have gas within the urine. And that's your pneumaturia. The person is urinating and gas will come out. They will be very surprised. They will probably won't forget that in their lives. But also, in certain cases, when the, <clears throat> when the fistula is, the diameter, the inner diameter of the fistula is big enough, you might see fecaluria, feces coming through the urethra. Okay? So, if it's between the, bl uh, the bladder and the vaginal canal, you would see urine coming through the vaginal canal. If it's between <clears throat> the bladder and the intestines, you might see the pneumaturia and the fecaluria. Okay? Plus, obviously, the urinary tract uh, uh, signs and symptoms that you know. Fever, malaise, myalgias, atrages, all the good stuff that you know. How you're going to do the diagnosis? History. Always history. Hey, there was a history of abdominal trauma. There's a history of diverticulosis. There's a history of hysterectomy. There's a history of uh, uh, a cystoscopy being done, you know, within a couple months ago. Uh, there's a history of cancer. There's a history of, uh, uh, let's say, append appendicitis. Uh, there's a history of, uh, of a penetrating abdominal injury. All those things, history, guys, history. Then examination, okay? If you're suspecting that it's a vaginal uh, fistula, examination of that area. With your speculum, you will examine all that vaginal canal, okay, to see if, if you can see the, the orifice of the fistula. Sometimes you won't be able to see it, but do not worry. There is ways to uncover it, and that's the number three that you see there. The indigo carmine or the methylene blue. What is this thing? It is just the stain that is mixed with the sterile saline solution. It's instilled into the bladder, and then it looks blue, by the way. It will come out through the, through the fistula, and it will stain the fistula, and you will be able to see it if it's in the vaginal canal, because it will uncover it. It will paint it. Okay? Make sense? Yes. 
then we can get a little bit more complex. We can go from expiratory urograms to fistulograms, computerized tomographies, MRI, cystoscopy, okay? You name it. What we want to do is we just want to identify where it's at so it can be fixed. You have examples there. Abdominal CT scan. You see that abnormal connection there? Sorry. Right there. That shouldn't be. There shouldn't, there shouldn't be a connection there. There shouldn't be an opening. Then here, the one, the picture that we saw, remember? That's probably something like this. Okay? Now, is, here's a colonoscopy. Here's your orifice. This is pretty big. So, pieces will move into the bladder. Now, on this one, what we have is a barium swallow, right? That bladder shouldn't stain. Okay? It's only the column, right? The, the small intestine, the one should stain after a, a barium swallow, okay? Not the bladder. So, that is a proof that. We don't know, but at some level, certain level there, there's an abnormal communication. There is an enterovesical fistula that needs to be fixed. It's a nice picture. Now, differential diagnosis. Okay. It will include other etiologies of conditions that might cause uh, urinary incontinence. Okay, and we talk about uh, uh, those conditions already, you know, the, the type of incontinence. But also, okay, uh, I would say uh, that ectopic uh, implantation of the ureter, especially if it's within the vaginal canal, might be confusing. Okay, that's why doing the proper radiological uh, uh, diagnostic exams to identify and paint that normal uh, anatomical structures that we want to see, it is fundamental to identify what is it that you're dealing with, okay? What is it gonna be the treatment? Unfortunately, there's no medical treatment for this class, surgical. And it's very difficult, it's a difficult thing to fix. Because literally, let's say if this is the tubing, the fistula, what the surgeon will do, it is going to dissect. And it's going to try to pull out the whole tubing intact. Okay? Because if he leaves it, it's just going to keep growing. It's very difficult to treat. Very difficult. Fistulas. Then, uh, when it comes to the complications and prognosis, it's the repeti repetitive infections and, and the, wood, uh, the wound breakdown means if the surgeon is had such a bad luck and 
the fistula emerges through the site of incision, that incision is not going to close. The urine won't allow it to close. Okay? Now, <clears throat> the persistence, you know, uh, leakage of urine also, okay? Uh, they're going to be recurrent? Yes. It's like one of those bad stories that doesn't want to go away. That's a fistula. The fist, I will say, let me do this co uh, uh, comparison. The fistula is for the general surgeon or the surgeon in general. It's like the osteomyelitis of the orthopedic surgeon. They just don't want to go away. That's how the fistulas are. And then, now, they, they can cause, because there is an abnormal communication, and the integrity of the abdominal pelvic is compromised, at that point, they can cause abscesses within the abdomen, abdominal pelvic cavity. Okay? But also, they can cause, literally, uh, the individual to have repetitive abdominal surgeries. And these guys, what you see here, Additions. Unfortunately, additions are terrible. If they're strong enough in a day hole, they need to be fixed surgically. Okay. Means it will attach a segment of the intestine okay, to it and won't allow it to have normal peristaltism. Creating intestinal obstruction. That if it's not fixed, peritonitis. So it needs to be fixed. So it's like I say, it's a bad story that doesn't want to go away. It's it's difficult. Now, finally, oh, finally, we're going to talk about this, and this I need you to learn it, like the palm of your hand. Something that you might see, but you might overlook during your years of practice, family medicine and urgent department. Bladder carcinoma is the most common malignancy involved in the urinary system. It is going to be the transitional type or urotelial type. 90% of the cases is going to be that type. Transitional cells. Okay. A little bit of the epidemiology. It's common. It's a common disease. Once again, transitional cells, 90%. Men are going to be affected twice as often as women. What is it going to be the etiology? Environmental exposure to a lot of carcinogenics. Remember, the environment is filled with carcinogenics. They are absorbed through the skin, through the GI, respiratory. Sooner or later, they will reach the bloodstream. And all that blood is filtered. Right? It's filtered through the kidneys, but also is stored within the bladder. That's what I will say 
is the key ingredient, plus certain hydrolyzing enzymes that are within the vicinity that would transform these carcinogenic substances into something worse. So you have a, a list there, but there is thousands of it. That's just an example for you. This one, we do know cigarettes. Now, we don't know all the names of whatever is within the cigarettes, but we do know the cigarettes will increase the risk for bladder cancer. Chronic inflammation of the bladder, chronic cystitis. Human papilloma virus, especially strand 16, is associated to it. Radiation, right? by any reason, you need to receive some sort of uh, radiation therapeutics around that area. It can develop into cancer. And this antineoplastic drug, the uh, cyclophosphamide, okay, it can lead to bladder cancer. And also genetics. Okay, over one half of the tumors uh, containing a containing mutation on the on this tumor uh, tumor suppressor gene, 53. Now, <clears throat> signs and symptoms, and this is where we need to. Uh, have a little talk. How is it that you are going to be able to think about that? Hematuria. Macroscopic or gross, but also microscopic hematuria. That is fundamental for the diagnosis of this, this disease. Everything else, it is not too conclusive means a lot of diseases might have it, okay? A lot of diseases might have frequency and urgency. If you have cystitis, you will have urgency and frequency. If you have a urinary tract infection, you might experience that, the frequency and the urgency. So, hey, now, when the tumor is large enough, yes, it will start causing problems, you know? It will cause problems because it will get overinfected. It will get necrotic. It will bleed. So when that happens, yes, they must start causing pain because they will clog the exit of the bladder, and the bladder is going to get distended. Okay? But that's some advanced stages of the disease. Okay? We don't want that. We want to discover these things during the early stages of the disease. Now, if you tell me, well, Professor, I know for a fact that every time that I do a deep palpation of the hypogastric region out in a person that has a bladder cancer, I will be able to palpate a mass. It is not going to happen. You might be lucky that you be able to touch a large, massive mass within that area, and you'll be like, 
bladder cancer. But it's not all the times, guys. It's not all the times. Okay. Now, when there's a sp spreading of the tumor to the rectum, you might see some sort of a, uh, abnorm an anormalities within the within the cell architect architecture of the area. Okay. But once again, the hematuria should be your main concern. Okay? Especially on a patient that is a smoker or a patient that has a history of chronic cystitis or a patient that is the, the, the disease runs in their family or a patient that works all on, uh, on, on, on uh, uh, being exposed to radiation or has a history of being exposed to radiation or a person that works with chemicals that, that you don't know exactly the name or probably the patient doesn't know exactly the names. All those thoughts should be ringing. Hey, it might be, you know. Microscopic or gross hematuria, 80% of the cases. That's where you, that's where the goal is at. Okay. Now, if you say, well, the, the patient has hematuria, but he just got into a car accident. Don't worry about it. It's because of the probably the abdominal trauma or the perineal trauma. Okay. Maybe something wrong with the urethra. Okay. But if, if that's the hematuria. But it's painless. It has been there for a while. Watch out. Okay? Now, irritative, voiding symptoms, 20%. Like I said, a lot of diseases might have it. So, it is not patognomonic for bladder cancer. Obstructive symptoms. Uh, benign hypertrophy of the prostate. It can give you those obstructive symptoms. Uh, an enlarged, an enlarged uh, ureter cell. It can give you that. So, once again, it is no patognomonic. Stick to your painless hematuria, microscopic or gross hematuria. How you going to do the diagnosis? Besides the clinical history and the physical exam, you need diagnostic exams to prove your differential diagnosis. And there is several exams, like the one that you see here is known as the urine cytology. Bless you. A specificity of 100%, but the sensitivity is less than 75%. That's your gold standard that you see there, cystoscopy, okay? Because it will allow us to see the lesion, but also to take a specimen, sample from it, send it to pathology so they can tell us it is or it's not, okay? Then you have this technique that is known as bladder wash cytology, which literally they just liquid into it, they wash it, and then they collect the liquid and then analyze to look for 
malignant cells. CT urography, MRI urography. Okay, as you see, CT less invasive than uh, than the the actual intravenous urography, but if the CT is not conclusive, MRI will do the trick as well. But also, renal ultrasound, bone scan, x-rays, x-rays, to look for all the things. Now, what I have here is to show you that, yes, when the mass is big enough, on the picture on the, your right, that's just a regular bladder ultrasonographic image. As you see, that's a pretty big mass. It can be seen through ultrasound. So don't be scared or don't be um, close-minded that you cannot use ultrasound. Ultrasound is a really good tool. The only thing that the person that is doing the ultrasound needs to have a little bit of experience. Right? But yes, it can be seen. Now, what you see on the right side, that's your cystoscopy. That's how, with a cystoscope, that's how the mass is going to look. Okay? That's how it looks under a CT scan. On the top left, right here, that's how it looks from the outside. Once has been uh, surgically removed, and that's how it looks from the inside. Once they open the bladder, okay. So <clears throat> there is other exams. Basically, the routine exams. You know, there is even uh, tumor markers. They're good, but their specificity is not all there. You know, I will say, if you have if you are suspecting individual, like I said, smoker, or somebody that is exposed to chemicals, working in a chemical plant, that has uh, all the other things that are related to cancer, like for example, uh, unintentional loss weight, weight loss, I'm sorry, nice sweats, uh, grow, gross hematuria, but it's not painful or microscopic hematuria, I will say this individual needs to be referred to a urologist so he can receive a, uh, you know, a cystoscopic examination of the bladder, at least, to see what's going on. Never, never or overestimate the hematuria, especially when you don't have history that can explain it. Now, if you have a, a person that has uh, benign prostatic hypertrophy, 
yeah, you know what? That can explain the hematuria. Or somebody that has a history of uh, cystitis, yeah. Or recent trauma to the urethra. Or a recent catheterization. God, even if your female patient, when she took the specimen, she had the, uh, <clears throat> the menstrual period. That, you know, the specimen can be contaminated. That can explain it. But if you cannot exp uh, find an, a logical explanation why the hematuria and there is a history of exposure to cigarettes, chemicals, radiation, antineoplastic drugs, okay, keep bladder cancer into consideration, please. Okay, now. Differential diagnosis, as you know, a lot of diseases can be cancer. That's why <laughs> any chest pain, our patients are going to tell us that they have a heart attack. But any something abnormal, especially the older we get, anything abnormal, we might think that is cancer. So cancer can mimic a lot of diseases, a lot of diseases. And you have some examples there. And it could happen. For example, on the number two, hydronephrosis. How a cancer within the bladder might cause hydronephrosis? Well, think about it. If the cancer is growing within the area of the trigon where the ureters are entering the bladder, they might close the ureters, creating dilation of the ureters. Therefore, dilation of the of the of the kidneys, right? Right. Hydronephrosis. Yeah, right. So, somebody with hydronephrosis, I will say, not all the hydronephrosis are cancers, right? That's how you say it. Not all the hydronephrosis are cancers, but not all the cancers are hydronephrosis. There you go. Sorry, <laughs> got confused on the thing. So that's how you can explain it. Now, uh, what about kidney uh, or bladder stones? Yeah, they can cause the hematuria, guys. Remember, the, <clears throat> if, the, if the stone is big enough, it must start scraping the mucosa. Okay. So it's not strange to see hematuria on an individual with kidney stones. However, you need to connect what you know about kidney stones. That sudden onset of abdominal pain, that history probably of kidney stones before. Am I right? With cancers, it doesn't work like that. There's no pain until they're large enough to cause mechanical compression, uh, once they start invading surrounding tissues, you know, that's, that's when you actually can see uh, signs and symptoms. Treatment, you have it there. Like any other cancer, TNM, fundamental, tumor, nodules, metastasis, to determine the type of treatment that is going to be prescribed, that's not on us, unless if you work on oncology later on. Okay, that's your uh, survival rate. 
Okay? As you see, uh, the more advanced, the less the survival rate. And that's it. Okay, so, things that you need to manage, like the palm of your hand, fistula, <clears throat> uh, cancer, and what was the other one that was on? Huh? Incontinence, how to identify it. Which type? Now, neurogenic bladder, keep into your mind that you will see it on any disease. Or you, I'm sorry, you might see it on any disease that is affecting the nervous system. From Parkinson to diabetes and everything in between. If you are trauma, you might not be able to deal with it because, you know, you, do, you, you only do the shock portion of it. But anybody with a, with a, with a spinal cord injury, you know what? Even with a simple uh, uh, herniation on the lumbar region, these individuals, if there is enough compression of the spinal cord, and the nerves involved on the normal uh, functioning of the, of the bladder, they might experience neurogenic bladder. So that's why all those studies are the ones that are going to tell you exactly, hey, this is what's happening, and this is what we need to do. But not at this level. Okay? Have a nice weekend. Thank you. Right, thank you, Dr. Yeah. Now, when is it that we have classes? Monday? Monday. No, Monday we're off. Wednesday. Wednesday, I think it's over. No, Tuesday. I'm not here Tuesday. So.